Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. As Russia continues to assemble its military along the Ukrainian border, many are wondering what this means, both in Europe and here in the United States. Dr. Leon Aron is the senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies Russian domestic and foreign policy and U.S.-Russia relations. He was born in Moscow and came to the United States as a refugee in 1978. Dr. Aron, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. So give us a a little sense, uh, for those who haven't been following as closely, obviously there's a lot of activity going on uh, on the border with Ukraine and a lot of activity from Russia. Give us a sense of kind of where we are. We are where Putin wants us to be in the sense of sort of suspended fear and indeterminacy. I think it is not the the massing of the troops on the uh, Russian border with Ukraine does not seem to me to necessarily presage a war. But I think it's, it's an important signal that Putin sends to probably three major uh, addresses, uh, the Ukrainian government, the Europeans, and the United States. And so as you look at that, let's break those down just a little bit, uh, because I do think it's interesting. Most people think, OK, wait, if there's troops on the border, that's got to be a military thing. There's going to be something happen there. Uh, but I love how you've dug into this in terms of these three political maneuvers or three political purposes. So let's go into each of those and, and what that actually means. So first, obviously, the, the impact or the pressure that it creates on the Ukrainian government. Describe that to us. Of course. Putin, in, in 2014, while he uh, seized a part of Ukrainian territory on uh, the Crimean Peninsula, he also essentially uh, uh, jump-started a civil war in the southeast of Ukraine. The so-called pro-Russian separatists, of course, are totally uh, subservient to, to Moscow, uh, funded by them, armed by them. And it's kind of a Trojan horse inside of Ukraine. And Putin opened and closes <laughs> this horse and let the, let the warriors out as he sees necessary in terms of his geopolitical calculations. So he intensified kind of a, a slow war or a frozen war, you may call it, but people still die between those separatists and the Ukrainian army. It's been intensified. So the first signal is to Ukraine. Don't you think about you know, attacking my guys there because mm-hmm. look what I have here. Don't do it. The second address, of course, is France and Germany. Uh, France and Germany, along with Russia and Ukraine, are part of the so-called Normandy Group, which tries to develop, and it's a big charade because obviously Russia is not a peacekeeper here, but an active participant. But everybody goes along with the charade. So France, Germany are trying to bring some sort of you know, more or less permanent peace in that part of Ukraine. And they forced, or, or Russia also uh, militarily, forced Ukraine uh, a few years back to sign so-called uh, Minsk Agreement. Minsk is the capital of uh, Belarus where it happened. And those are very bad agreements. They essentially solidify, essentially, a Russian, pro-Russian enclave inside of Ukraine. I mean, there are all kinds of niceties there, but the bottom line is that that's a pro-Russian enclave. And the final address, of course, is our own White House. Look, I believe we spoke at the time where I said this sets a very bad precedent because remember when Putin maneuvered there um, in the beginning of the year, what did Biden do? He begged for a summit. And I said at the time, this is not a good policy 
because it tells Putin that all he has to do is to uh, flex his muscles and uh, the American president will come calling. Incidentally, there has been a rumor, I think pretty, pretty solid one, that, that Biden asked for yet another summit with Putin uh, starting next year. So I think these are the objectives of this sable rattling on the Ukrainian border. Yeah, I think it's interesting that uh, you raise this point that uh, it seems like uh, the White House is uh, rewarding bad behavior <laughs> from uh, from President Putin, uh, and it seems to keep him in a position of control. Uh, and is that really the object? And, and if it, this is to move towards a summit uh, of some sort, uh, what should we be watching for in that? What are the things we should be worried about uh, as we continue to, again, seemingly reward Putin's bad behavior uh, with calls for summits and, and calls for meetings? Well, we need to remember that, and that was true of the Soviet leaders as well, but certainly true of Putin. Every meeting with the American president is a huge domestic political boost, and, and things are really not terribly well for Putin inside. I mean, the COVID is raging, raging in Russia. I believe they, they've reached, at some point, there were more um, people dying in Russia than anywhere else. Cannot get on, that under control. The economy, of course, is in a very bad shape because of the structural issues with the toxic investment environment. Mm-hmm. So foreign policy, and that, like I said, that, that was true of the Soviet Union as well. Foreign policy that instills the pride in your country, that, that makes people swallow all those indignities, inconveniences, bad economy. That has always worked um, throughout Soviet history, and Putin is reprising it. What concerns me is that at least during the Soviet days, we had some preconditions for meeting Putin. The American presidents, actually starting from from Nixon on, uh, had you know either a release of a dissident or some, some liberalization of the immigration policy or something like this. As far as I know, the first meeting with Biden had absolutely no preconditions. In other words, Putin didn't have to do anything to receive this big domestic political boost. And I don't think there's, there are any preconditions now. So what we need to be worried about is that you play with, with fire there. You deploy troops. They don't go to war. You get a summit. But it's a, it's a slippery slope because what, what if at some point somebody begins shooting? Fascinating stuff. And, and uh, beyond just real quickly, uh, just one final question. Uh, obviously, the no preconditions is, is something we should alter. What else should the, the White House be doing or what should the messaging be or what do we need to do with other allies in the region? What's one thing that we should be doing uh, as it relates to Russia and, and Vladimir Putin? Well, there are, there are a number of things. Well, first of all, like I said, don't go to summits unless you have something to show for it. Right. The second thing, and, and actually the Europeans are, are sort of trying to do this, they're sort of reaffirming their support for Ukraine, but it would be nice to see something tangible. Under Trump, there was a, um, and actually that started under Obama, but continued under Trump with some lethal weapons, including anti-tank missiles. Mm. Most of Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian troops are killed by, by the Russian tank fire. So something tangible to show both to Putin and to Ukraine that it's more than words, that we are really uh, there to help Ukraine and that Putin runs real risks if he attempts to pressure Ukraine for more co- concessions or attempts an outright aggression. 
great insight as are always. Uh, Dr. Leon Aron is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, again, where he studies Russian domestic and foreign policy and U.S.-Russia relations. Uh, great insight as always. Thanks so much for joining us on Inside Sources today. We'll have you back real soon. I think this is going to be a story we're going to continue to need to follow uh, very closely. Thanks so much for joining Unfortunately, us. Unfortunately, yes. Thank you very much. Great conversation there as it relates to Russia. We'll continue to break that down. We're standing by uh, President Joe Biden and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris are set to speak and to sign a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, stay with us. We'll get into that in just a moment when he steps to the mic on KSL News Radio. I'm Dave Cauley investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.